Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 200. Holy 200. shit. Here we are. 200 episodes. You know how many hours that equates to? Infinity. Do you? It's like, no, it's like, it's hundreds of hours, though. Wow. I mean, some episodes are two, some are an hour and a half, and we're talking probably three, 400 hours of us talking. And we still love each other. We Amazing. do. And we're still doing this podcast. We haven't quit. <laughs> Hopefully, yep. we'll do a lot more, too. Yeah, we kind of felt like maybe we should have planned something big for 200. I don't know what that would have been, but a lot of people were like, can't wait to see what we have for episode 200. I'm like, what's so special about 200? It's just a number to us. It's just another week, right? It's just another I guess, but episode. I mean, I get where people are coming from. 200 episodes, that is a lot. I say we do something spectacular for episode 1000. That Once we get to 1000, a long way to go. We'll, do, we'll do something big. <laughs> I don't know what we could have even done. Yeah, I don't know. I went back and looked at episode 100 and we, it was just a, it was a, the Valo. Oh. That was the Valo oh, episode. Oh, when we had Sarah Turney with us? Mm, I'm not sure I didn't, I didn't actually click on it, but. I'm pretty uh, sure. It might've been, yeah. Yeah. I know we had Sarah for that case. I can't remember if yeah, we no. covered it more than once, but mm. I'm pretty sure Sarah was with us for that one. Yeah. So here we are a hundred episodes later. Yep. And today we are talking about the unsolved murder of a woman named Lisa Ow. Yeah, this one is really, really interesting. I'm curious to see what you guys will think after listening to the episode. Yeah, it's one of those that can go in a number of different directions. Definitely. Because they, the police just botched this one so bad. Yeah. And there potentially is even a police cover-up with this one. Potentially. Or it was something completely random. I mean, there's a lot of theories with this one. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm intrigued by it for sure. Yeah, you actually chose this one because we are going to Oahu this week. We We've are. Never been. We are. And that's where it takes place. It is. So. Yeah, we're going to we'll go drive uh the highway which is where her car is ends up being found. Yeah. abandoned the Polly Highway. Apparently a very dangerous highway. Well, I mean, if you think about it, a lot of roads in Hawaii are I guess you could say dangerous. A little dicey, you know, yeah. In some mm -hmm. of the more remote areas. But yeah, we will be taking next week off because we are going on our baby moon. We are. going to take a little break, go relax a bit, spend time together. It's our last hurrah before yeah. baby comes in a couple months. I was so. just thinking that we're probably not going to travel for a long time. <laughs> I know. I, d I don't know if we'll be on an airplane for a while after this. Yeah. I guess we just have to see how she is. Yeah. Some babies. Praying for a easier than easy others. baby. Uh, yeah. We shall see. <laughs> But also, we do have our 420 sale coming up for Higher Love Wellness. You guys always go hard with this sale. <laughs> we almost sell out pretty much every year. So if you would like to get anything from Higher Love Wellness, the sale starts on 420, which happy 420 to you peeps. And it goes through the 27th. Yeah, so we're a doing a week-long week sale and everything on the website minus bundles is 30% off, which That's is right. huge. So stock up, take advantage of this because this is uh, definitely the biggest sale of the year. And 420 is actually the same day that this episode's dropping. So when you're listening to Ooh. it, it's live. Hit it up yeah, before hit it stuff now. sells out. Good <laughs> tip, Janelle. Also, I wanted to just quickly update people on merch that we are working on the next merch collection. We're uh, revitalizing the merch website currently. Mm -hmm. And I know we get messages every day, people going to milehighmerch.com and it's hitting a blank page. Hopefully that is fixed by now. Now, if you go visit, it should prompt you to put your email in to be notified when it goes live. We don't have an exact launch date for uh, the new merch oh, website yet. It is. Look at that. Janelle yeah. just pulled it up. Right. But, Stay uh, in the know. Yeah, exactly. So 
yeah, hopefully we'll be back up with a new collection here towards the end of May is what we're thinking. So Yeah, and it's cool. We've it's really cool. been working really hard on it, and I think you guys are really going to like what we're coming up with. And we have Sus, Sus merch. Yes, Sus merch. Yeah, I was going to say uh, Cesspool merch. Cesspool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are coming out with merch collections for all the shows. Lights Out, Sesh, Mile Higher, all the podcasts will have new merch coming out, hopefully in May. Yeah, very Fingers exciting Fingers crossed. Stuff. Taking very it day exciting. by day, because we're doing a lot of it ourselves. Yeah, time, so. yeah, we are. It's a learning it's quite process. the process. <laughs> it is, but it's going to be awesome because we are hand selecting the items and like making sure it's all to the standard that we want. Absolutely, so. only the best. Only the best. But this episode of Mile Higher Podcast is brought to you by Babel Pretty Litter Simply Safe Hill Fresh and Favor, which is formerly known as Pill Club. Okay, so Lisa Yu Ao was born on July twenty fifth, nineteen sixty two in Honolulu, Hawaii, to her father, Chester, and her mother, Patrice. Lisa was Hawaiian on her mother's side and Chinese on her father's. She was also the oldest in the family. She had a little sister named Mei Lee and a little brother named Chester Jr., and he also went by Denny. Her father worked as an auto mechanic, and her mother was a waitress, and Lisa grew up in Kailua, which is a city on the windward side of Oahu. The windward side of Oahu is a region that is a bit more relaxed than the busy side of Honolulu. Honolulu sits on the opposite side of the mountains that divide the two coastlines. Since the winds travel up the mountains to the leeward side, the windward side is wetter and rainier. Life on the windward side was pretty peaceful for the owls. Lisa was a typical Hawaiian girl with a lively personality and beautiful wavy black hair. She and her family knew plenty of people in the local community, whether it was from school or from work. And everyone that knew Lisa thought that she was an all-around great girl. In 1980, Lisa graduated from Mary Knoll School, which is a Catholic K-12 school in Honolulu. And she was excited to start a new chapter in her life as an adult. So at the time that all of this happened, Lisa was only 19 years old. Chester Jr. was 16 and May Lee was 7. The sisters were 12 years apart, but they were still very close. May Lee always looked up to her beautiful big sister, Lisa. Some of May Lee's fondest memories of Lisa came from a family trip to California. The Owls spent their mainland visit at the theme parks Knott's Berry Farm and Six Flags, riding down roller coasters and playing carnival games. May Lee even got to see her first ever movie with Lisa, which was Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. Lisa was always a hardworking and responsible girl. At just 19 years old, Lisa had her whole life ahead of her, and her career was just getting started. She had just finished eight months of beauty school at the Trendsetters Beauty College in Honolulu. Eventually, she got a job as a hairdresser at the Susan Beer Salon in Kailua. And Lisa had been putting her training to good use. She had already worked at the salon for about five weeks by the time that all of this happened. Now that she had a job, it was time for Lisa to get her own place. So she moved to an apartment in Kailua with her new roommate who was named Candy Maines. Candy was also a hairdresser at the Susan Beer Salon. And Lisa was pretty excited to move into her own apartment and become more independent. Her boyfriend, 23-year-old Doug Holmes, helped her move all her furniture into the rental and get settled. Doug was an engineering student at the University of Hawaii, and the two of them met while Doug was working at a restaurant in Kailua. He lived in the dorms, but the two still got to see each other pretty regularly. It was a quick 30-minute-ish drive from the dorms to Lisa's place. Doug's sister Kristen lived nearby in Makiki, and the three of them had plans to enjoy dinner together one night after Lisa got off work. So on January 21st, 1982, Lisa went to her job at the salon. It was pouring rain in Oahu that day, 
the kind of rain that was so heavy it flooded the area and made it difficult to drive. Lisa's mother told her that it probably wasn't a good night to go out. But Lisa said, you know, I'll be fine. Patrice had good reason to tell Lisa to stay off the road, as she had just gotten her driver's license two days before. Lisa and her dad went together to buy her a car, a dark brown 76 Toyota. As a new driver, the weather was intimidating, but Lisa was determined to keep her plans. That evening, she finished up at work and tidied her chair. She told her coworkers that she was heading out to her boyfriend's sister's apartment in Makiki. Then around 9.45 p.m., Lisa hopped into her car and drove through the pouring rain. It's tradition in Hawaii to bring a small gift when you're a guest at someone else's house. So on her way to Makiki, Lisa stopped at a grocery store called MJ's in Kailua. She purchased a bowl of poke to share with Doug and Kristen, and to pay for the food, Lisa wrote out a check for $2.80. The clerk asked for an ID, and Lisa happily handed over her temporary driver's license. Then she headed for Kristen's apartment on Mottsmith Drive. To get there, she drove down the scenic Pali Highway, which connects Honolulu to the windward side. Yeah, this highway is actually really dangerous. It's known as one of the most dangerous highways in Hawaii. And like you guys were saying, there's a lot of these uh, different highways and roads in Hawaii. I've never been, but it sounds like there's a lot of different yeah. roads, highways. Well, for a long time, they didn't like put railings and stuff yeah. around it. Like it was just like kind of cliffside roads. And, you know, like when we go up driving the mountains, you know how on most of our major highways, they have like mesh netting over the sides of the ro- oh, cliff for faces for rocks yeah, to fall yeah. down. A lot of places in Hawaii don't have that. Yeah. So when they get heavy torrential rain like that, it makes sense that there'd be landslides, falling rocks, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then actually I was looking and I found a study that was done in the early 2000s. So it was a while back, but I still thought it was interesting. Um, it was ranking the top 10 rock fall hazard sites on Oahu. And this highway was ranked number four. So, so probably a lot of reports of falling yeah. rocks things like that especially when it's raining and i'm sure it's dangerous to be out on on the highway and torrential heavy rainfall yeah if it is raining we are not going on it that sounds so oh nice. we're for sure going on it no we're not i think that's like one of the main ways you get around yeah like, it is i mean if you go on that raining, side of the we will stay in no i'll just dodge the rocks i'll just <laughs> i'll have you look no. out the window and if they no it's, it'll be fine i and again this was back in 2000 so when things like this happen and you know if there's yeah, but if crashes. you but if you Google it and like say like poly highway incidents, a lot of shit that pops up. I feel like it's constant. They're like oh. always doing repairs and stuff. Okay, that makes me nervous. Yeah, well, we'll just have to see for ourselves, huh? I agree. <laughs> but in a lot of areas of Hawaii, a lot of the sort of you know you go outside the cities, the cell service definitely gets a lot lot more spotty. So if you do get in a jam. You better hope somebody drives drives down the road and yeah. and helps you because you might be there for a while because your cell phone may not work. But I, I think as time has gone on, it's gotten better. But still, it's definitely, uh, especially during this time period when Lisa's out there, it's definitely very dangerous. So it was a stormy night, and naturally it was going to be a tough drive. But Lisa eventually made it to Kristen's place safely. The three of them spent the evening together enjoying homemade enchiladas and Lisa's delicious poke soon it was starting to get pretty late though and it was time for doug and lisa to head home since the road conditions were bad kristen offered to let lisa stay over but lisa declined they all said their goodbyes and the couple headed out doug got into his car and headed back to his dorm at the university and lisa would be driving by herself at around 12 30 a.m that night she set off from kristen's place for her house in kailua 
We left at uh, about 12.45, and uh, we went downstairs, and we had both driven uh, our own cars, and uh, we had said goodnight, and that, that was the last I saw. Before Lisa left, she called her roommate Candy and told her that she was on her way home from Kristen's place. Candy expected to wake up and get ready for work together with Lisa in the morning, but Lisa never made it back to Kailua. That morning, Candy called Lisa's parents and told her that she hadn't come home that night. It was super unlike Lisa to miss work without calling the salon, but she never showed up for her shift. Lisa's mom was obviously very concerned that her daughter didn't come back to the family's house and that she had no idea where she was. But Patrice knew she'd been at Kristen's place for dinner, so she and Chester called Doug to try and track her down. Doug told them that he had last seen Lisa the night before, but he didn't know where she was right now. He worried that Lisa might have got into a car accident driving through that huge storm the previous night, and her parents started to panic. Doug offered to drive out to Kailua to look for her, and shortly after he set out, he spotted Lisa's car. It had been abandoned on the side of the Polly Highway in Mount Awili, near the old Kailua drive-in movie theater. The car was 10 miles away from Kristen's house in Makiki, and only 2 miles from Lisa's apartment. So her car is abandoned to only two miles from her home. That's that's a little strange to me. Like, unless the car just randomly ran into troubles at that point, which, as we'll find out later, not much to point towards that, but only two miles away from home, and that's where it's found. And it's interesting that it really didn't take Doug that long to find out where her car was. Like, they set out, and he pretty much found it shortly after they, they left. So... It's just interesting to me. It might just be something to note yeah. when talking about Doug because obviously in you know these types of cases, oftentimes you want to look at A, who was last seen with them, and B, the significant other. And in this, this case, it's Doug. Mm-hmm. So it's just a, just a little interesting to me that Doug somehow led him right to it. But they are on an island. I mean, it's not that much True. Space. There's only so many ways you can go. And someone could have been profiling her specifically and knew where she lived and yeah waiting for her to come home that way along her route yeah right yeah no that's a good point but when they check out the car there's absolutely no sign of lisa in it or anywhere near it and at that point doug immediately called the police when police arrived they discovered the driver's side window had been rolled halfway down and the front seat was totally soaked by the heavy rain there was actually about two to three inches of water on the car's floor The lights and windshield wipers were still on and the battery was drained. So it's like, yeah, just disappeared right from the vehicle. And at the time, it seems like the vehicle was working just fine. Yeah. Um, And just it had stayed on overnight and the battery died. Mm -hmm. Hmm. All that rain had caused a mudslide on the Poly Highway that night. And it appeared that Lisa's car had broken down or stalled out potentially. Several other cars had stalled on the highway that night because of the rain. The police found a dollar bill, some change, Lisa's car keys, the half-eaten poke bowl, her wallet, and some extra clothes inside the vehicle. Lisa's purse was sitting on the driver's seat, but oddly enough, again, the seat is soaked, but the purse is completely dry. It was like someone had put it back there after the rain had stopped. Yeah, that's really weird. Yeah, and things only get weirder from here. The car's registration papers were missing from the glove box, and Lisa's temporary license was also missing from her purse. Everything else was still inside the vehicle, though. If Lisa had gotten out of the Toyota, 
and just left, she probably would have taken her purse. The officer who responded to Doug's call also noticed that he had some scratches on his face. Something was seriously off about the whole situation. Investigators processed the car as evidence, and they dusted it for prints. But the crime scene investigators determined that the Toyota had been wiped clean of any evidence. Now, Lisa was officially listed as a missing person. The police suspected that someone had abducted her from her car. A massive search started on the windward side, and everyone hoped that they would find Lisa safe and alive. Lisa had been last seen wearing yellow shorts, a blue long-sleeve v-neck sweater, and a leather zori, which is a type of Japanese sandal. The family passed out hundreds of flyers with Lisa's face on them in hopes that someone would find her alive. But things were not looking good. They suspected that something terrible had happened to their daughter. Days passed and there was no sign of Lisa. Maylee stayed with relatives while her parents desperately searched for her older sister. Church groups brought their family meals and over 150 Marines from the local military base pitched in to help find Lisa. Soldiers, volunteers, and the police combed the island for any sign of Lisa. Helicopters searched swamps and marshes near Kailua, and psychics even tried to predict where her body would be found. Thank you, it's just not enough. They have been just great. The support has been just marvelous from the community, from people. But none of the searches panned out. The Owls begged whoever took Lisa to return her to her family safe and unharmed. Day and night, they waited by the phone for a call from Lisa or her abductor, but they never got that call. They never got a call demanding a ransom or a message from their daughter. On January 31st, 1982, a man was walking his dog on Tantalus Drive in Honolulu when he smelled a strong odor. He followed this strange smell and it led him to an embankment off the road. He walked 10 feet down the embankment, trying to figure out what the smell was from. When he looked down 25 feet into the ravine, he saw Lisa's naked, decomposing body. The man immediately ran back to his house and called the police around 1.47 p.m. Officers rushed to the scene and identified the body as Lisa's. Her parents' worst fears were confirmed. She had been murdered. Patrice and Chester now had to break the horrible news to the rest of the family and they started with Mei Lee. They sat her down in their room and told her that Lisa had gone to heaven. Mei Lee was heartbroken. She didn't realize that she wouldn't be able to spend time with her big sister anymore. Lisa's body was located about three miles from Kristen's apartment and over 10 miles from Lisa's apartment, but her car was located about two miles away from her and Candy's place. Police had to try to figure out how her body ended up miles away in the opposite direction. The Honolulu Advertiser, a local newspaper, started a fund for Lisa's case. They offered a cash reward to anyone who had information on the murder that could lead to an arrest. Private donors chipped into the fund, hoping that someone would come forward with a tip. The paper raised over $9,000 in reward money. Meanwhile, Lisa's case went from a missing persons case to a homicide. The Honolulu City Medical Examiner Charles Odom conducted Lisa's autopsy. But because her body was so badly decomposed, Odom couldn't tell what her cause of death was. All he could say was that her death was a homicide. I think also just because her body was found naked, it makes sense that this is likely a homicide, sexual assault involved potentially. Because, you know, one other thing could be suicide, but because she was found naked, I think that kind of rules that out. So the police had to look elsewhere for clues. Based on the evidence from the car, it looked like Lisa had been kidnapped from the highway 
or she was killed somewhere else and her vehicle was staged on the Pauly Highway to try and throw off the investigation. Unfortunately, the police's investigation was pretty shitty overall. The whole thing was filled with personality clashes, ego battles, politics, and just plain out sloppy police work. Police had multiple suspects in Lisa's murder, but they didn't necessarily act like it. Once they'd found their main theory, they pretty much put their blinders on to any other evidence that proved it otherwise. Police began to suspect that Lisa had been killed by a police officer or someone impersonating an officer. Her window was rolled down halfway and her license and registration were missing. So, of course, it may have appeared like she had been pulled over by an officer. Some witnesses even reported that they saw Lisa's car pulled over on the side of the road that night and that they saw a car with blue lights on its grill behind her. A newscaster reported that he saw Lisa's car parked on the highway around 1.45 a.m., about an hour after Lisa left Kristen's place. Now the police need to figure out who could have pulled her over. Their first suspect was a Honolulu Police Department officer named Thomas Byrne. And some troubling recent events led the police to feel uneasy about Officer Byrne. First, Officer Byrne had been accused of sexually abusing a 14-year-old girl who went on a police ride-along in 1980. He was convicted in September and sentenced in December of 1981. But his sentence pretty much amounted to a slap on the wrist. The court ordered him to serve 120 hours of community service, pay a $250 fine, and complete a year of psychiatric counseling. I would call that a slap on the wrist for sure. He was only suspended for a total of five days before they let the guy come back onto the force. That's trash. What the hell? Wild, but not surprising. Also, Officer Byrne apparently knew of the Owl family and lived a block away from them. And on the night Lisa disappeared, he admitted to pulling over a woman on the Pauly Highway for driving erratically. Then Officer Byrne went to a party that night on the windward side, and the police wanted to figure out where he went after that. A female cashier who worked in Kailua reported that she'd been pulled over on the night Lisa disappeared. It was suspicious considering the officer drove an unmarked car with blue lights on the grill. On February 5th, she identified Officer Byrne as the cop who pulled her over that night. Byrne was suspended from the force the same day the woman positively identified him. The Honolulu Police Department took their police dogs to go sniff their squad cars, but these dogs are primarily trained to find bombs and drugs. And out of all the vehicles, they only alerted to Burns's car, which is kind of weird. And it's not really clear as to why they alerted to it. The police even hypnotized a police officer named Michael Rayfelt to try and get answers. On the night Lisa disappeared, Michael was directing traffic on the Pauly Highway near where her car was discovered. They tried to see if he could remember spotting Lisa or Officer Byrne that night, but he couldn't. Meanwhile, panic spread throughout the island because it had leaked to the media that Officer Byrne was the prime suspect in Lisa's murder, and the public was terrified that there was rogue police officers out there pulling women over and attacking them. If you've never been to Hawaii before, it's actually pretty common to see police driving around in civilian cars with you know police lights attached to them. Oftentimes, the police use their personal vehicles or a vehicle given to them for personal and work use, which saves the police departments a lot of money. And so you do see this quite a bit. I know we've seen, uh, you know, when you're there, you're like, where are all the police? But then you realize they're all driving civilian cars. They're not, in, they're not necessarily them. in marked cars unless you're in some of the more urban areas of Hawaii. But on some of the islands, I think they only have uh, civilian vehicles, actually, because you barely ever see the, the marked cars. The Honolulu Police Department's policy is that officers can drive these flex vehicles if they've been in the force for eight years or so. And this is as of 2022, and we're not sure what the policy was back in the 80s, but that's what it is now. At the time when police were on duty, they had to attach the typical strip of blue flashing lights to the top of their car, 
and the strip would be removed when they were driving the cars off duty. But they were basically given a set of police lights or blue lights to attach to the car's front grill or dashboard in case of an emergency. So if they had to respond to a call, just plop them right on the vehicle and, and respond. It didn't take long for local residents to realize that all someone had to do to impersonate a cop was place these lights on their own cars. Or if they bought the car from a former cop, they might have these lights installed already. Oahu residents were understandably concerned that police impersonators could easily target young women driving alone. There had been a rash of police impersonation crimes in the past few years. Fake cops were pulling women over for suspicious traffic stops using those blue grill lights. In one instance, a fake cop pulled over a man with long hair believing he was a woman. And that fake cop became violent when he discovered that the driver was actually a man. One woman reported that she was pulled over by a suspicious officer who asked for her ID. And at first, the stop seemed pretty routine, but the man told her she needed to get inside his squad car to check it. The woman immediately drove off and the fake cop followed her for a while. And when she went to the police station, they confirmed that the traffic stop was completely fake. Multiple suspects had been identified by the Honolulu Police Department for police impersonation over the years. And people began to believe that Lisa was killed by one of these cop impersonators. Young women got more and more nervous about driving alone, especially at night. And the Honolulu Police Department reassured women that they didn't need to pull over for unmarked vehicles. They even banned blue flashing lights on car grills. And now these unmarked cars had to have a blue light strip on top of the vehicle at all times. But still, the police were dead set on their main suspect, Officer Byrne. Their tunnel vision caused them to neglect other suspects and evidence because they were so sure of their theory. They did do some investigative work, though. It just wasn't all that great. The lead detective on Lisa's case, Nelson Lund, suspected that Doug may have been involved with Lisa's murder. He asked Doug to take two polygraphs, and Doug failed both of them. Polygraphs are very interesting. Yeah, super and sketch. always talk about if they're, yeah, how legit they are. I feel like, I don't know, because the American Polygraph Association, actually, and they're the ones that kind of set the standards for testing, say that they're highly accurate. Uh, and that they have an accuracy rate of 90% when done properly. But, of course, people will, who are more critics of them say it's more around 70%. But still, that's like yeah, over 50. So, And I think it's also who's uh, conducting the test, too. Like how experienced the actual yeah. uh, person giving the test is as well. But when you're talking about life or death situations, I mean, you kind of want it to be 100%. Yeah. One thing that's crazy, though, is that the dude who invented it, um, John Larson, he invented it back in the tw 20s. Really? And now he's actually supposedly withdrawn his own support for his invention, which I thought was interesting. But I was like, wow, they really haven't changed much since then, um, you know, overall, except for the fact that it used to, you know, it used to be like a little piece of paper with the, the needle. Kind the of needles, right, yeah. But now Scribbling. it is fed through a computer. So it's I guess hmm. you could argue it's a little bit more accurate. But still, the fact that the technology overall, I was reading about it, really hasn't changed, at least from what I was reading, that much. That's so interesting that and he withdrew his own years. support. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Was then, it because it's like he didn't like that how it was being used for investigations? Maybe, or? but huh. actually, I don't know why he invented it, what the use is for. That'd be a good question. Like, huh. why did he invent it? Right. Um, I think he invented it at school. Or he was a student at University of California. And he, hmm. was a, he was a cop. So I guess, yeah, he probably did it for, for law enforcement. Yeah, for law enforcement. And then there's been talk about how 
you know, we could try and use MRIs to actually measure the brain's wave activities. Mm. But oh, that's an interesting hasn't thought. really come into effect. I don't know if it's just because it's too expensive. Or I was going to say it'd probably be really expensive. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's only a matter of time before Elon Musk, you know, his Neuralink comes out and we can just oh, right. download yeah. people's memories to a computer and review oh, it on God. the machine. Imagine like you can just you yeah, can get a warrant the, for that. And, I was going to say, what's the like logistics of that? Yeah. Yeah. How, well, how like, much control do you have? Insanely <laughs> invasive. Yeah, you'd have to, I feel like, have a pretty good warrant. Well, someone would have to agree to it. Even with a polygraph, someone has to submit to it. True. Higher. I mean, it's still interesting, though, that Doug failed two polygraphs. Because even if it's, let's just say it's 50% mm-hmm. effective or accurate. Yeah. To fail twice. I guess the more you take it, the more you can kind of. You would think that if you fail first, that you might be able to trick it the second time and pass the second time, but he just failed outright twice. A lot of times, though, if you're, even if you're telling the truth, like you're still nervous because you're Mm -hmm. on a fucking polygraph test. Like, I feel like I could see myself having really bad anxiety, even if what I was saying was true and I didn't do anything wrong, just for the fact that people think that I did something wrong. There's a Mm -hmm. possibility. So they strap me up to this weird machine. Yeah. And that's why they don't use them in court really can't prove either way well i mean the thing about polygraphs though is it's basically just measuring the human's experience when it comes to the emotional state that they're in when Mm -hmm. telling the truth it's a weird thing like if you look at what john larson created it for it was to you know he kind of he was a medical student as well so he's trying to compile these different things to because it's you have to create a baseline right? right they like get a baseline uh, of questions like, before they Josh right yeah yes. okay, things that you see. wouldn't lie like yeah. why would you lie about that to get the baseline on your you heart rate mm-hmm. um, blood pressure respiration rate things like that and right. so but that's all physical stuff like you can be telling the truth and your heart rate can be up you know what yeah I mean? exactly like, you can be telling the truth and you can be sweating out of nerves so yeah. it's not like it's reading the actual brain waves of like I'm not a scientist but whatever goes on <laughs> yeah. in those neurons that are saying yes you're lying or no you're not or whatever there's no way for it to be 100 percent accurate really so when you lie the fear of being detected causes increased activation of your sympathetic nervous nervous system yeah and that's that's how they determine uh if it's a lie or not but then again i mean everybody's different and everybody's body's different so i think it's incredibly hard to sort of create a formula off of these things where Somebody could have the ability to, you know, they could be a Zen master and be able to keep right. themselves completely calm. Right. And it, their baseline could just be the same all the time, no matter what you ask them. So it'd be easy to fool it. So I, I see I see the controversy with it for sure. But mm-hmm. And when Doug was asked about failing the tests, he said it was because he felt guilty because he was an inexperienced driver. So he didn't drive Lisa home the night that she disappeared. But of course, he felt like, he probably should have. I get that, I guess. Yeah. I mean, again. Well, it's good enough for the police. Yeah. Yeah. They thought this explanation was good enough. And they said that Doug didn't have any motive to kill Lisa. She wasn't pregnant. Neither of them had been cheating. There was no money involved. But Doug did tell them that he was trying to end their relationship. He thought they were in two different places when it came to schooling. He was just going to college, being educated, but Lisa was more or less trying to stay still. Hmm. I get that to some extent. I feel like there's more going on there that we just don't know. Mm. 
with this this relationship i mean it's interesting and they both left at the same time i don't know maybe i mean but it's speculative it is it is so in august of 1982 an investigative grand jury was called to hear evidence against the police's suspects and the proceedings lasted over a year meanwhile the honolulu police department lieutenant bert corneal was growing pretty frustrated with the police's investigation he had been assigned to help work on Lisa's homicide case, but Bert thought HPD had botched the case from the start, and he felt like they were putting their egos before justice. So Bert took another look at the case and discovered some serious mistakes. The investigators failed to track down or even ignored certain witnesses and potential pieces of evidence. Months after Lisa's body was discovered, Bert went to the MJ's grocery store that Lisa bought poke from and he found out that she had accidentally left her temporary ID at the store after she wrote them a check. This is absolutely abysmal police work. I know. You're investigating a homicide Crazy. and you don't even retrace her last steps or where she was I know. that night. And that's unreal. I mean, you go look at her account. She wrote a check for $2.80 for poke. Yeah. And because they didn't do that, their main theory was that this was a, a yeah. traffic stop because the again, it doesn't explain right. the registration being missing. That is that is very weird that the registration's missing, but at least we have an explanation for where her ID went. It seems kind of strange that the store didn't contact police, you know? Yeah. Especially when flyers start going up everywhere. Like yeah. why wouldn't the grocery store be like, Oh yeah, we we have her Yeah. Her it kind of sounded here. I mean, somewhat of a small town feel. No, but it was everywhere. I mean, they're putting flyers up right. everywhere. So this was like pretty well known major news and not anyone in the store was like oh this id belongs to lisa i mean it's just a little weird but anyway this discovery cast doubt on the police's theory that an officer murdered lisa bert also found a witness a newspaper delivery driver named charlotte kamaka he interviewed her on august 6th 1983 and charlotte reported that the night that lisa went missing she saw something suspicious on tantalus drive around 2 30 a.m that night she was stopped on her usual paper route when she saw a blue car pass by. The driver was a white man who had a female passenger in the front seat, and it looked like the woman was sleeping or unconscious, and when the driver made a turn, the woman's head just fell. In other words, her body looked like it was limp. The mystery driver turned his car around at a paved lookout. When he saw Charlotte, he stopped the car and stared at her. The female passenger was no longer in the car. Charlotte was able to get a good look at the man's face before he drove away. So when she heard that Lisa's body was discovered on Tantalus Drive, she came down to the police station herself to report what she had seen. And a detective wrote down her information and told her they would be in contact. But, of course, they never even called Charlotte. She called them over and over again to get any updates, but they didn't tell her anything. So Bert showed Charlotte a photo lineup to try to identify the driver. And out of all the photos in the lineup, Charlotte picked out the police's second suspect. That second suspect was actually Doug Holmes, Lisa's boyfriend. Mm, I don't know. It's a little sus. Very sus. Mm. Doug also allegedly drove a blue car that matched Charlotte's description. Yeah, there's some speculation around yeah. this blue car and whether or not... Doug actually drove one and there's a picture which we believe is from Bert's case files that shows this blue vehicle that Charlotte remembers seeing. So I don't know. I think I think it all kind of points to Doug driving this blue vehicle that was seen that night. It's possible. Lieutenant Corneal also tracked down a security guard who worked at Kristen's apartment. He said that on the night that Lisa disappeared, he saw Doug and Lisa arguing around 11 p.m. 
Lisa drove off and Doug left after that. But Doug told police that they hadn't argued that night. And like we said earlier, polygraphs should be taken with a grain of salt. But Doug's first polygraph did show that he answered deceptively when he told police that there was no fight. The security guard wasn't interviewed by the police until after Corneal found him. It seemed like the police were trying to prove their theory no matter what evidence came their way. That caused even more mistakes and shady police work in Lisa's case. The day after Bert talked to Charlotte, the Honolulu police chief called a meeting with key people in the case, including prosecutors and detectives. They were going to hear evidence against their second suspect. But the police were pretty dismissive of Charlotte's testimony. Detective Lum claimed that her story changed three or four times since her first statement. And after that, they pretty much just wrote her off. Remember Michael Rayfelt, the cop who had been directing traffic near where Lisa's car was found? Well, he said that he didn't remember seeing her Toyota that night. But the Honolulu Police Department allegedly asked Michael to lie to the grand jury. They wanted him to say he'd witnessed a patrol officer stop and talk to Lisa at her vehicle. Michael said that he wouldn't tell an outright lie like that, and he refused to testify. And it only gets worse from here. Tissue samples from Lisa's body were sent off for a toxicology report on January 12, 1983, almost a year after her death. A year. The forensic toxicologist noted that it took the city medical examiner an oddly long time to send those tissue samples. He said that the longer the tissues sit, the less likely his test will pick up toxic substances. On February 2nd, 1983, the tests were completed. The forensic toxicologist found a small amount of cocaine in Lisa's tissue samples. This discovery contradicted some of her friends' previous statements. They said that she didn't use hard drugs, she only smoked marijuana from time to time. Bert thought this discovery could have completely changed the way the police approached the case. If they had known about the cocaine earlier, they might have looked into Lisa's friends since their statements didn't match the evidence. Patrice agreed. She thought that the former medical examiner neglecting to send Lisa's tissue samples harmed the investigation, and she believed the police were too busy with their own theory to investigate Lisa's murder properly. However, the police said that the cocaine discovery had no effect on their investigation. According to the New City Medical Examiner, the presence of amphetamines in Lisa's tissues wasn't conclusive. He said that decomposition can sometimes produce amphetamines. This is a very true thing, especially the longer that the tissue samples sit. Still, the fact that the tissue samples were sent in so late was clearly inexcusable. The delay might have caused some crucial evidence to be overlooked. The owls were faced with another horrible situation. They were about to lose their welfare and their Medicaid benefits. Chester had a heart attack in 1980 that required surgery, and the surgery actually gave him a case of hepatitis which damaged his liver. That meant he couldn't work anymore and the family relied on those welfare payments to make ends meet, while Patrice worked as a waitress. The state's Victim Compensation Fund sent the Owls a check for $4,336 to cover Lisa's burial costs, but that money was considered income for tax purposes which meant that the Owl's monthly welfare checks would stop coming in since that extra income disqualified them from their benefits. This also made them stop qualifying for Medicaid too. As you can imagine, the Owls were super, super outraged, and they rejected the $4,336 check. The maximum payout for the state's fund was $10,000, and they felt anything less than that $10,000 was an insult to Lisa and to their family. Even though the family refused the check, it still counted against them as income and they were basically forced to accept it. Government regulations did not let victims' families reject compensation payouts, and the owls could rip up the check all they wanted to, but it still wouldn't make a difference. Also, any private donations to the family would count towards their income. 
so the family had to refuse those contributions. A judge eventually ruled that the owls could keep their Medicaid coverage, but they still lost the welfare benefits that, th- that they used to keep them afloat. In May 1983, Chester and Patrice sued the city for negligence, seeking $35 million in damages. They said that the city police department failed to help Lisa when her car stalled on the Pauley Highway and the conditions on the highway were unsafe. And because of that, Lisa was kidnapped and murdered. In the meantime, the family had to cope with the unending grief over their daughter's murder. They wondered if Lisa would ever get the justice that she deserved. Detective Cornell ended up retiring from the force, and he actually became a private investigator for the Owl family. He believed that the medical examiner who performed Lisa's autopsy did not do a proper job. So Lisa's body was exhumed for a second autopsy on June 16, 1983. The Los Angeles coroner flew out to take a second look at Lisa's body and try to determine the cause of death. And Bert's worries about the first autopsy turned out to be correct. The medical examiner in Honolulu had made some pretty hasty and sloppy mistakes that embarrassed the whole medical examiner's office. Lisa's remains were still in a police body bag when she was buried. There were still leaves, dirt, and other litter inside of it. Her body had never even been washed. It's unbelievable. The Los Angeles County Coroner took a look at Lisa's jawbone and skull. The results of his exam have not been made public. However, he noted that Lisa's body was in an advanced stage of decomposition. This meant that it would be hard to make any conclusions about her cause of death. All he could say was that it wasn't natural causes. After over a year of evidence presentations and proceedings, the grand jury disbanded in 1984. And they did not move forward with indictments against any suspects, including Officer Byrne and Doug Holmes. And since the grand jury didn't indict anyone, the Honolulu Advertiser returned all of their Lisa Al reward money to the fund's donors. Burt thought that the grand jury's failure to indict scared off prosecutors from trying to get a conviction later. It was a huge blow to the case and it would make it that much harder for Lisa's killer to ever be brought to justice. The grand jury exposed all of the mistakes that the HPD made in their investigations, mistakes that a defense attorney could easily turn to. In 1984, Thomas Byrne actually sued the former HPD chief of police, a detective, and the news station KHON-TV for $20 million. He said that being named as a suspect caused him to become a paranoid alcoholic who was shunned and hated by his friends and family. He claimed that he needed money for damages and psychiatric care. However, this suit was eventually dismissed. In 1985, Detective Lum announced that his investigation produced no evidence that a police officer had murdered Lisa. After three years of the police pursuing that theory, nothing ever came of it. There was no physical evidence discovered that conclusively linked anyone to the crime. From the very beginning, the investigation was full of mistakes. The Owls claimed that poor police work, political infighting, and possibly even a cover-up really hurt the case. And since the police had spent so much time going after Officer Byrne, the Owls think that they tried to cover up their mistakes. Other leads weren't pursued as heavily because of the ego battles in the HPD. Their family did ask the FBI to look at the case, but it doesn't look like that request went anywhere. In 1986, a judge ruled that the city was not liable for Lisa's death, and the Owls' lawsuit was dismissed. The judge said that there was no concrete evidence that the police passed Lisa's car on the poly that night. The state Supreme Court upheld the decision. They said that there was no circumstance that created a duty for the police to take action. 
So the police's failure to protect Lisa did not justify a lawsuit in this case. As you can probably imagine, going through all this and the lawsuit and just the lack of help they were getting and the lack of justice that was happening, it was very difficult for Chester and Patrice's marriage. In fact, they actually got divorced in 1990 and Patrice remarried shortly after. Tragically, Patrice was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1991. The cancer spread throughout her body and she quickly became very sick. Patrice worried that she'd die before her daughter's case would be solved. She told her kids that if something happened to her, mommy went to see Lisa. And sadly, she never got the answers that she deserved. On her deathbed, she begged the police to set aside their differences and solve her daughter's murder. Patrice Al passed away on Christmas Day, December 25th, 1992. And Chester Al passed away on November 20th, 1998 and was buried next to Lisa. Both parents never got to see their daughter's killer be brought to justice. As she grew up, Chester and Patrice tried to shelter their daughter from a lot of the news, but May Lee could tell that it took a toll on them. As she got older, she started to read news articles about her sister and ask questions. Now, May Lee is still hopeful that Lisa's case will be solved. She and her brother Denny are on a mission to find out what happened to their sister. They promised her mother that they'd do everything they could to find Lisa's killer. The Al family wants Lisa's body to be exhumed and examined again. It's a painful process, but the family hopes that new technologies will be able to give them the answers they need. My parents are gone, and they know what happened now. Now we just, as the living, want to know, I guess. A lot of our family and our friends that were close to us want to know. I can't imagine living without answers like that. Seriously. Life. And this is crazy, but there's a really big issue. There's a dispute about where Lisa's skull and jawbone are now. The Honolulu Police Department says those remains are in the hands of the medical examiner's office, but the medical examiner says those remains were placed back in her casket. So the Owl family has been left to wonder whether or not those remains are really there. And obviously, if you're going to go through the process, the painful process of exhuming her body again, you would want to make sure that they have everything they need in order to do a full autopsy again. In 2018, the Honolulu Police Department launched their new cold case squad, and they still investigate Lisa's case today. As the years have gone on, they hope someone who knows something about her death will come forward and clear their conscience. After so much time has passed, it'll be hard to get an indictment in Lisa's case. Many witnesses have since died, making a lot of their testimony hearsay evidence. Charlotte Kamaka, the witness who saw the man in the blue car, passed away in 2017 at the age of 73. The security guard at Kristen's apartment has also since passed away. However, there are still many key players in this case who are still alive. Burt Cornell stated that he would come back to Hawaii from Florida to help the case in any way that he can. Michael Rayfelt, who was asked to lie to the grand jury, said he would be happy to cooperate with the future investigation. Doug Holmes, on the other hand, ended up moving to Melbourne, Australia. He works there as an executive at an investment firm. And in 2019, he issued a statement that said Lisa and her memory deserve justice. And it's good to hear that the Honolulu Police Department now have a cold case squad. It's been 40 years since Lisa Al was murdered and her case is still open and unsolved to this day. So what happened to her? I don't know. This one is really, really tough. It really could have been so many different things. Obviously, Officer Byrne is a possibility, especially because he was pulling over another woman that night. It kind of makes you think. He was aware of the Al family. He lived, you know, down the way from them. Mm -hmm. 
he did have the you know sexual assault conviction against him yeah from prior so yeah. that could be a motive yep especially because people did see the blue lights which you know isn't even confirmed we don't right. know that that was even for sure the vehicle that pulled her over or if people just saw that yeah. i mean there wasn't even much information about those witnesses who came forward saying that they saw that so well and there difficult. wasn't much information gathered from witnesses period this is the, this is the difficult thing I think you have to look at the car too. I think either she was pulled over by somebody mm -hmm. impersonating a police officer. The window being half down is weird. The registration being missing is yeah. also very bizarre because why else would somebody who's going to kidnap mm -hmm. a woman to take advantage of her sexually or whatever, unless that was the way they sort of lured her out of the vehicle was that I'm a police officer, give me your license right. registration. It's also something that you would think maybe an officer would think to take, even if that wasn't the way they lured her. Right. You know, the average person probably wouldn't even have that on their mind. Yeah. It's difficult in this case because just the police department just messed up so bad with right. this one. And it's, we don't know if potentially the reason why we don't have more information or even what they're telling us that the, they dusted for fingerprints and it was clean. I mean, we don't even know if that's true mm -hmm. or not. I mean, this yeah. could have been a complete cover up by the Honolulu Police Department yeah. in order to protect maybe another officer and, and instead. Yeah sort of Officer Byrne is a scapegoat because he kind of fit the M.O. of, of what happened. Um, Honestly, it's possible. And that it could have been somebody that they're trying to protect. It could have been somebody high up in the uh, the police food chain that they're trying to protect for some reason. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult, though, because, I mean, with Officer Byrne, the grand jury never brought charges against him. And, I mean, the police were going very, very hard after him. And you would think that ultimately they would have got him but yeah ultimately there was never they never were able to bring him to trial so it means there wasn't enough evidence to me i feel like officer burns is kind of the just the fall guy maybe and that's what they were trying to do perhaps this was just somebody random who realized it's super easy to impersonate a cop who is a sexual predator that just decided that that's what they were going to do that night and it was com this was a completely random sort of abduction and, and yeah. murder yeah, very possible it absolutely could be and it's possible that all these other suspects were just kind of a distraction in a way yeah it could be i mean it's just i mean the purse thing is weird the fact that the car soaked but then the purse comes back dry so perhaps mm -hmm. the purse was on lisa or lisa got out of the car see like one thing that i think of is this could have been lisa's car could have stalled out potentially because mm -hmm. of the rain she gets out with her purse to try and but then the somewhere. purse would have gotten wet. Right. But I'm saying she was abducted with her purse. So whoever took her purse took took Lisa with it and, and then came back, did what they did that well, night, and then returned possible. it to the scene after they were able to clean it of any sort of prints or DNA or whatever. I mean, obviously, DNA would be a great tool in this case, and I think it's going to be very difficult. I mean, they don't even know where her skull or jawbone is, and it's been so long, and plus mm -hmm. her body was deep severely decomposed when they found it. I mean, DNA is going to be difficult, but maybe it will help lead somewhere. What do you think about the cop impersonator theory? I mean, that definitely stands out, especially with how easy it seems it would have been at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's happened other places and especially in Hawaii where you have civilian vehicles also acting as police cars. It would be very easy for somebody to do that, which is the whole reason why, they don't do that in a lot of places and especially 
uh, busy areas because I mean you would never know if you're actually being pulled over by a real cop or not if mm -hmm. you can't identify it. That's why even unmarked police cars are yeah. generally a Ford Interceptor or Explorer and they just have their lights on the inside. But I, I have uh, I went on a ride along in New York City with with some detectives in the gang unit and they drove like a Chrysler Pacifica. It was like an unmarked completely civilian unmarked car That's so. Scary. and they just had like we were driving around doing surveillance and all of a sudden they're like, Oh, there, there's the dealer. And we were surveilling this dealer and they just like reached under their seat and pulled out this yeah. little light and just like stuck it up into the windshield and then pulled the guy over. Yeah. I mean, I can see how that would be useful, but also so dangerous. Mm -hmm. It makes, especially as a woman, it really makes you think, you know, to which possibly is, call and make sure whoever's yeah, or drive to the nearest legit. police station. If you're really, if you're really suspicious of, uh, who's yeah. stopping you of it being a cop or not. Cause this does mm -hmm. happen. If you go on YouTube, you can find all the police impersonators yeah. that go around and pull people over pretending to be cops. And they're not cops, yeah. even though they look, they might look like a cop doesn't necessarily mean they're a cop. That's why it's when you get pulled over, they're like, hello, I'm officer. So-and-so with the mm -hmm. you know sheriff's department. This is why I pulled you over. And you know, it's important to get identification because there are people that do impersonate. And especially in the eighties, I can imagine this was probably a much larger issue. I come back to Doug, though. I think it's very weird. Doug, like, went to the other side of the planet. And, I mean, Doug's car is potentially the one that was seen. He was fighting with her earlier that night. I think there's mm -hmm. more to the story with Doug. Yeah, and maybe possible. it was one of those situations of, like, if I can't have you, nobody can. But he was also saying he was going to break up with her. But he could be but just he making could just that be up. Lying. I don't know. And yeah. he failed two polygraphs, which... Again, yeah. not 100% concrete, but could Doug have done this? He absolutely could have. It's just hard because it doesn't seem like there's really a motive. But, I mean, it's possible. As far as we know, but they never investigated it. Yeah, not enough. But then again, I'm like, why the police go through so much time and effort to frame this Officer Byrne? Unless they just want to get him as far away from them and kind of put him away. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. It's just weird that Doug literally left the entire, you know, he went to a whole nother country. He's living a whole other life over there. But then again, I mean, it could be just yeah, what Doug wanted to do. The guilt, like he said, he felt just guilty that he wasn't there to protect her that night. And maybe all the speculation, not, you know, advocating for him, but just thinking it's always possible. And the scratches on his face. What's yeah, that about? That is pretty interesting. So if there was a physical altercation that happened, potentially, some, you know, they had another argument before they left that night. They left late, too. Mm -hmm. And she had cocaine in her toxicology report. So perhaps they were partying late. Yeah. And things went south. Yeah. She She got in her car to try to leave and go home and get away from him. And he followed her. And yeah. either he impersonated a cop in order to get her to pull over and then... And then took her and did whatever or. Yeah. And Charlotte found, you know, yeah. picked him from the photo line. Right. And That's she said she got a clear strange. view. Or yeah. he's got, got a clear view of the his face. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he does seem like the strongest suspect out of them all. But he does. And, just and again, it's just a poor, poor police investigation where everything just got completely lost and just botched. Like they don't there's nowhere, no clear path that they had. They were just so going so hard with their one theory that they they missed so much evidence and interviews and testimony they could have collected. What do you think, Janelle? 
I don't know exactly what I think happened, but I found this one thing online that I thought was kind of interesting. I don't know if I necessarily believe it, but it made me raise an eyebrow. So between 1985, 1986, mind you, she died in 1982. So it's not directly in this time frame, but it's still relatively close. There was this person who ended up killing five women between the ages of 19 and or 17 and 36. This person was known as the Honolulu Strangler or the Honolulu Rapist. But when I was reading about the five women who were killed, they're all on Honolulu, which is a weird because it's an island. So to have mm-hmm. like a serial killer running around on an island, yeah. like it's not hard to get from one point to another point of the island. So right. just the fact that all five of them happened on the same place that she was killed. And also, I believe it's they kind of line up with the um, highway system that mm. her car was found on. So, And all really the Strangler's victims, I believe, were uh, sexually assaulted, found, bound. Uh, a lot of them, I think, didn't have clothes as well. And mm. Lisa was found with no clothing. Yeah. So it's, it's possible. I think I, I was looking at sort of the geographic location of where they found uh, the Honolulu Strangler's victims, and it was around, it was more so in the city mm. of Honolulu and uh, Waikiki. But again, uh, I mean, area. a lot of yeah. serial killers try to yeah. diversify the way they kill people and where they kill people. Could, she might have been the first victim for all we know. She, he could have went That's somewhere true. safer rather than do his first first kill in the city. He could have went somewhere else and, and did it there. But again, if you look at the actual um, autopsy information, things like that for the victims um, of the Honolulu Strangler, I don't know if they necessarily match up with... with uh, Lisa or not right but again I think it's a very it's interesting to consider I mean you have to always consider that there's a serial killer running around as as scary as that is to think about is definitely a possibility but oftentimes in these types of cases it's the significant other I think it would make me believe this theory more if the dog theory no the Honolulu Strangler oh if it was between the dates that the other 85 five. and 86 yeah. because like mm-hmm. while it's you know only three years before you know that's still a decent amount of time yeah that could easily be two different people but if it right. was in those dates then that would really make me think that that yeah, was more yeah possible. and you would think that at some point during their investigation for the strangler that police might have gone and connected that to lisa somehow or would have uh, been like oh well this i don't know they didn't sound like they knew what the fuck they were doing yeah so. that's <laughs> a good point it's true it's true i mean you know there's there's bound to be a few good ones mixed in with with the yeah, bad ones so course. i i like to think that there's somebody with a brain Maybe. in the honolulu police department well you'd that like to think that. that but i don't know <laughs> i don't know i would have liked to see a lot more evidence but i don't know i i think i'm gonna i think my my gut tells me Potentially, Doug has something to do with it. I think Doug's and there's the just strongest no, suspect, but no linkage. There's just not enough to say 100. No, because the investigation was just botched so badly that they didn't get the proper. Yeah, you know, I just feel so bad for their family. I mean, just the way everything ended and her mom dying without answers, her dad dying without answers, it's just awful. I can't imagine living like that. It happens so often. Oh yeah, living with no answers has got to be the worst thing. Ever. I mean, even obviously it's terrible when someone is murdered and you do get justice. It's still extremely painful, but not having those answers, that's just a different type of heartache that I don't think any of us can truly wrap our minds around. No, not at all. 
So if you know anything about what happened to Lisa Al, please call the Honolulu Police Department at 808-529-3111 and share what you know. Or if you prefer, you can click the link in our description and report a tip at the website honolulupd.org. Yeah, I mean, they, they formed a cold case squad, so they're, they're still investigating it, still an open yeah. case. Yep. And all we can do is hope that there's something yeah. or somebody that comes forward it's that knows something. Late. And yeah, I mean, cases get solved mm-hmm. long, long time from when it happens these days. So could happen still, could be solved still. But that is going to be it for us today, guys. We definitely want to know what theory you lean most towards, or maybe you have a different theory than we even went over. Yeah. Let us know. Yeah, let us know. But that is it for us today. Make sure you follow us on social media at Mile Heart Pod. Also, we're on TikTok these days. Oh, yeah. We're well. TikToking it up. We're TikToking it up. <laughs> so check us out over there. Make sure you're subscribed on YouTube and following us on Spotify. We really appreciate it. There's and also a highlights channel. Oh, right. There is also a highlights we channel. We do there. have a highlights channel. Good point. Everything's linked below for you. Mm-hmm. And just a reminder we will not right. be here next week, unfortunately, but we'll be back soon making more yeah, content. Yeah, just taking a week off and then we'll be right back at it. But until then, Keep on taking your mind a mile mile higher. higher.